0: This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is taking just a few minutes today for you. Hi, and welcome to my initial podcast of Self Work. I'm so delighted you decided to join me. Today, we're going to be talking about therapy. Now, you're a podcast listener, so I imagine you are a seeker of information. And that's really what therapy is, seeking information from someone else about their perspective on your problems, issues. But many people don't consider therapy. I did a study, and I'm going to talk to you about the results of that study, why men and women don't seek therapy, what are their major reasons for such. Then, the second part of the podcast, we'll be talking about What can you really expect from good therapy? How do you know you're getting good therapy? It's harder to realize some of the issues there than you might think. So I've written a book called The Seven Commandments of Good Therapy, and I'm going to be sharing some of my results of that book with you. In the last part of the podcast, I'll be reading a question from an actual reader. I get lots and lots of emails every week from people who have concerns or issues in their life that they just want my perspective on. I'll be doing this at the end of every podcast, so you can feel free to send me in your questions. I would love that. I'll talk to you more about the information about how to get me a question a little bit later in the podcast. I've been living in Fayetteville, Arkansas now for about 23 years, 24 years. I moved here in 1992, so what, that's 24 for sure. And I moved here from Dallas. I'd lived in Dallas 13 or 14 years, and that's where I got my education What I so noticed when I first moved here was that the stigma of getting therapy was very, very strong here. In Dallas, you you could even wear a badge saying, I've been to therapy today, sort of like I voted today. It was everyone talked about being in therapy. So when I moved here and found out that people still whispered about it or didn't want anyone to know they were in therapy, I was pretty shocked. But actually... uh, It depends on where you live in the country, but there are strong beliefs that people have about seeking help for their problems uh, from a psychologist, a social worker, counselor, whatever. Um, I personally am a therapist because I got really good therapy, so I, I have my own feelings about that, but everybody has their own journeys. What I wanted to share with you was a study that I did last year. I did two of them, actually. One was for women and one for men about the reasons why people would not consider coming into therapy. Results are not too surprising, really, but there is a gender difference that I thought was notable. For men, the reason they would not necessarily come into therapy was a quote-unquote belief, I will get over it, meaning that men really valued a self-determination or a sense of, I can do this as an individual. Women, on the other hand, a vast majority of women said others would think I'm weak or think less of me. So it seems like women were more conscious of stigma or social awareness. Uh, this was an interesting finding, I thought. But what strikes me so about this whole issue, let's take the one from men first, belief that I will get over it. When we think about our leaders, um, our president, our Anybody that is in a position of authority, we think about them as surrounding themselves with people who give them advice, their advisors, their cabinet, if they're the president. And these people give them, uh, give the president or a leader their opinion. Really, therapy is just the same. It's, It's like consulting. It's just consulting someone who has literally spent years talking with people about panic or depression or relationships or even thoughts of hurting themselves and know what to do about it, know how to talk about it, and have shared many, many stories. I've heard many, many stories from people over the years. In fact, I often think of myself as a conduit between people, the person that is sitting in front of me and people I've seen in the past. I'm getting to share wisdom from that person that I saw in the past and I saw really work hard and feel better, get better, and the person who is struggling right in this moment with whatever the issue is. So I would urge men to consider it as a consulting position. In fact, I had a man recently say to me that he thought coming into therapy would make him feel less of a person and in actuality he feels like he is a better husband, a better father, a better coworker. Then as far as women's views that uh, there there's a stigma or there's social awareness, they're very socially aware, therapy is not about just getting support for your own thoughts and feelings. In fact, quite the opposite. Good therapy is asking you to confront things in yourself that are problematic or causing you problems. So actually, it's a strength. You have to have a lot of strength to hear uh, objective feedback about yourself. Sometimes it's not too pleasant. Believe me, I know. So I think that women, instead of having to create some kind of uh, perfectionistic stance and look like they don't have a problem in the world, actually it takes a lot of courage to come into therapy and talk about yourself very, very honestly and um, you know not holding anything back that's kind of tough but just how do you know that you're getting good therapy what constitutes a good therapist what does he or she say look like what does their office look like what are the what are the things that how you know that your therapist is giving you ethical treatment in my book seven commandments of good therapy i do outline this but i'm going to talk to you about it today First and foremost, a good therapist should respect boundaries. If your therapist, for example, says to you, this is my favorite nonprofit charity, would you give $100 to it? That is terrible. If they they tell you you're a special client and they would love to meet you for a glass of wine or a cup of coffee, That is not respecting boundaries. There's an inherent power difference because you're telling your therapist things that are very confidential, and you know nothing about your therapist or very little. So anything like that happens where your therapist crosses the line, I would immediately go tell another therapist. And if it's something really inappropriate, it's probably even reportable. So a good therapist must offer uh, and honor confidentiality agreements your Your therapist shouldn't tell anybody, not your father, not your mother, not your sister, nor anyone that you know that you're in therapy with them. It is confidential. The therapist needs written permission from you to talk to anyone, even if it's your referring doctor then a good therapist and this is this is number three a good therapist uses self revelation very very carefully if if your therapist is sitting there talking about her hair appointment or her kids or his his fishing trip over the weekend, then there's something wrong. Relationship should be only about you. Then a good therapist should also have very understandable business practices. You should sign an agreement. You should know how long the therapy is going to be, how, um, how expensive the, therapist is, uh, the therapy is going to be. You should know all things about what to expect in therapy. Then number five is that a therapist should be completely attentive to you. I actually, <laughs> I can't believe this, but I actually have had people tell me that their therapist went to sleep and they went back. That's not, you don't, you don't want to do that. <laughs> your therapist needs to be hanging on your every word. I'm thinking about it and giving you feedback. A good therapist is also professionally accountable for your healing and care. If they seem disinterested, if you have not been getting better for several weeks or months and they're not saying anything about it, that, that person is not taking professional accountability. You have a contract with them to get better and that should be happening and both of you should be able to recognize that you're getting better. A good therapist should also be very consistent, where you feel very safe. You, you want the therapist to be the same person every time, not to have significant mood shifts or look like they are not doing well themselves. They need to be very consistent and safe for you. So those are the things you want to look for in a good therapist. What does this look like pragmatically in the relationship? I've already discussed that you should sign a well-written consent to treatment and a confidentiality agreement. You should know how, for example, they store their files. That's in a HIPAA document that they should show you when you first when you first go to therapy. You should know how insurance or payment is being handled. Do they allow you to pay out over time? Do you have to pay every session? How is it handled? And you should know this ahead of time. Boundaries of confidentiality will be discussed. Let's say you're um, in marital therapy and your therapist is seeing both of you individually, it should be understood that anything that is said in that individual session needs to be discussed in the marital session. If if a therapist is seeing your child, certain information can be will be shared, but there are other things that your therapist will have to use his or her judgment before they tell you. That can be kind of tough for a parent to realize that Their kid is talking to their therapist about something that they wish they knew. Again, you're trusting your therapist's judgment. But all of that should be talked about prior to the therapy starting. Your therapist should also let you know, do they do emergency hours? Are they available after 5 o'clock in their office? Are they available on the weekends? The trend in the United States is that therapists are not available after 5 o'clock. Their voicemail will say, if this is an emergency, call 911 or go to your nearest emergency room. I personally am still available after 5 o'clock. I've never quite understood this trend. I don't agree with the trend. People's problems don't go away after 5 o'clock. And I have found that most patients, do, most patients are very, very good at respecting my own personal life. And they, do, they simply don't contact me unless it's an absolute emergency. But you should know what your therapist does. Also, you should know a basic treatment strategy. And what I mean by this, a therapist can't obviously say, well, in four sessions you're going to be better. But what they can say is, if you're not better in six sessions, we'll need to discuss medication, or we'll need to see what else needs to happen for you to feel better. Some therapy is short, um, very solution-oriented. Other therapy is more as my father would have said, talking about your belly button. (laughs) Um, But some therapists, I mean, it depends on the kind of therapy that you are getting, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or whether it's psychoanalysis. Whatever it is that feels, that fits what you need at that point in your life, that's a decision. And you need to know what kind of therapist your therapist is. What theories do they follow? Are they more solution oriented? Are they more process oriented? Are they going to focus a lot on the past? Do they focus mostly on the present? Do they know techniques such as EMDR or hypnosis that augment the kind of treatment that you can get? All of these questions are your right to ask. They're your right to know. Now there are also several different degrees that people can have. I have a PhD. That means I'm a psychologist and I went to graduate school. Psychiatrists, are medical doctors, and most of them don't do therapy anymore, or a lot of them don't do therapy anymore. They're just um, prescribing medication. There are also social workers and licensed counselors. The education is different for all those different degrees. So educating yourself a little bit about what kind of licensure your therapist has is a great idea. So basically, let's talk a little bit about what I would call the seven commandments of good therapy. Now again, if you would like to read this material instead of just listening to it, you can go to my website at drmargaretrutherford.com and it's available for a free download. Number one, number one commandment. Believe in your therapist expertise and enjoy a strong therapeutic alliance. What does that mean? That means you feel like you you're on she or he is on your team that they've got your back, that you believe that they really care about you. And what research has shown is that this is the most important factor in whether you're going to get better or not. I know that seems perhaps a little counterintuitive, but that's the, that's what meta-analyses or analyses that study all kinds of different research show. It is the relationship that matters. Then no... That you're moving toward positive goals, and you're meeting those goals. So many people come to me as a therapist and say, "Well, I didn't. I stayed in therapy with her for about a year, but I really, I didn't get any better." And I would say, "Well, why did you stay?" And they said, "Well, it's kind of like your hairdresser. You feel like you, you know, you have a loyalty to them. Plus, this therapist knows a whole lot about you, and it seems very odd to leave." What I would counter with is to remind you that one. Everything they know is confidential. They cannot tell anyone else. And two, you need to be your own best advocate. The third commandment of good therapy is knowing your therapist is attentive and engaged at all times. Like I said, if she goes to sleep, that's not a good sign. Number four is know your therapist has excellent personal boundaries and the therapy is about you. Therapists do not, should not sit over there and talk about themselves unless for some reason it's helpful to you. But the therapy is about you. The fifth commandment is to enjoy ethical, sensible business practices that are explained well. This is huge. I had a patient one time who told me that their therapist did not bill them for several months and then all of a sudden actually never told them what the therapy cost. And then they got some kind of humongous bill. So obviously that is not what you want. You want to know the pragmatics, the practical nature of the relationship before you ever, ever start talking. The sixth commandment. Is knowing that your vulnerability is never compromised that you feel incredibly safe, therapists do have a lot of power for you because of what you what you have revealed to them, so they need to handle that very, very carefully and seven know that your confidences are being kept. I think most therapists are pretty good at this, but I have heard sometimes people talking about patients, especially in a psychiatric setting or in a hospital setting or in a clinic setting. And really, that's just a big no-no. Your therapist should hold your confidences, and you know it and trust it. I have to tell you a funny story that happened to me about this whole confidentiality issue. One of the bad therapists I went to, who happened to be a psychiatrist, his wife worked for him in his office, and she was a lovely person, kind of what you think of as a as a, a true Texan woman. She had coal black hair and lots of jangly jewelry, and she was just as nice as she could be. And I was sitting out in the waiting room one day. I was being treated for panic attacks, by the way. And she came out in the waiting room, and she sat down by me, and she said, Can I ask you something? I said, Well, sure, of course. Ask me anything you want to. She said, What exactly is wrong with you? (laughs) I couldn't believe it. And then she said, Don't tell Raymond I asked you. So I told her that I had panic disorder. But I've never forgotten that. Um, Obviously, the staff should also hold your confidences. That was a that was fun. She also asked me to their daughter's wedding, so there's that boundary issue as well. She was not very healthy, and actually, never neither was he. I should have run like the wind. But anyway, if something happens to you like that, then I might consider seeking another therapist help. Well, now we get to the part of the program where I'm going to read a question from and our comment actually from one of my readers. She says. Dr. Margaret, my first-born son had just turned 16 when he died by suicide. He was the perfect son, friend, and student. Not one person close to him, even in hindsight, could put a finger on a hint of his depression. I carry the guilt and blame for his death, even though it was not my choice to not be in his life. He was living with her uh, ex-husband. I would love to be able to just lay down and never have to face another day, but I can't. I have a family to be proud of, but it isn't enough. I want to fix this mess that is my life, and I can't. I hate being alive, but I will not give up. I will not quit. And I uh, just got back to her quickly. I am so, I'm so I can tell you're devastated by your son's death, and you're still fighting. And then she says, and I think this is an interesting comment, she says, if it is possible suicide makes a death of a child even worse, it, when it is suicide the people closest to you, judge, whisper, and even say things like, well, it is what he wanted. You and I know both no you and I both know when someone dies by suicide it isn't because they want to die it's because they don't know how to go on living anyway i wanted to, i brought this up because um the suicide rate is actually going up in the united states fairly dramatically over the last 20 years so you or someone you love may know someone who has committed suicide and be devastated by their death it does take a long time to heal it helps to talk about it. This particular woman has never gotten any kind of therapy, she told me later. So, obviously, I suggested that um, she get some therapy. I think that a lot of t- it, it obviously sounds like she did not have the relationship with her son that she really wanted. And often, uh, when someone dies, when your relationship is not what you want it to be, then the grief is even greater because the chance for improvement is gone. Certainly if you know anyone or you yourself are considering ending your life, if you or someone you love may be having thoughts of hurting yourself, then here's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-8255. I want to thank you for listening to Self Work today. I do blog weekly, and my blogs can be found on my website, which is drmargaretrutherford.com. And please send me questions. This is the way you do it. My email is askDr.Margaret, that's M A R G A R E T, at drmargaretrutherford.com. You can email me. I also have a Facebook page, which is under Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and you can send me messages there. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Margaret. You can tweet me or, or direct message me if it's something private do have obviously an office number. That number is 479-443-3413. And that is a confidential phone number. I'd also love, love to have your comments on this podcast. Since it's my first one, obviously, (laughs) I've got a long way to go. But I appreciate so much you listening and would love to hear what you have to say. I also obviously have to be able (laughs) to listen to objective feedback. Next time on Self Work, which will be in about two weeks, we'll be talking about the number one mental health issue in the United States, and it's not depression. Actually, it's panic and anxiety. So we'll be talking about panic attacks in the next episode of Self Work. Thanks so much for listening.